Now today we are back in Matthew chapter 8. We're in verses 14 through 17. And I want to remind you that in Matthew 8 thus far, we have seen Jesus heal a leper, a Roman centurion, and today we're going to see him heal Peter's mother-in-law. Now what Matthew is doing is he's depicting Christ as healing even those who had very low status in the eyes of the Israelite culture. And it's these healings that are designed to show Jesus has all authority. Now today we're also going to be learning from the healings of Jesus that he performed during this earthly ministry. We're going to see that they're really designed to show us that Christ can give us the ultimate healing. The ultimate healing that we all need is the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. That's what we're going to be focusing on here today. Now I want to begin here in verses 14 through 15 where we see Jesus show compassion upon Peter's mother-in-law, showing that, yes, women were fully included in Jesus' healing ministry as well. Notice the text says, When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. Now, I'm going to pull up my pointer. The first thing I want to point out here is that Peter's home now is in Capernaum. Now, remember, Peter is obviously married. He has a mother-in-law, after all. And he had a home in Bethsaida. And he had moved at some point. We don't know exactly when, chronologically. But he moved to Capernaum, probably to be closer to Jesus' headquarters in his earthly headquarters for the ministry. Now, notice here he sees the mother-in-law with a fever. And we're never told exactly why the fever was there. We don't know the underlying cause. In fact, Matthew oftentimes doesn't give us the root cause because his focus is not on the root causes of the illnesses, but the remedy to the illness, which is Jesus Christ. That's the focus. All of Jesus' healings in the book of Matthew that are done by Jesus Christ are, demonstrate, are to demonstrate for us the authority that he has over every kind of disease, over every kind of demonic being, even over life and death itself. That's what we see in the healings of Christ. In fact, notice here in verse 15 in blue, it says that he touched her hand and the fever left her. Now, I think here, once again, Jesus' touch is important. Not because there is some formula for which Jesus heals. So I think some have concluded from this, well, you have to touch people in order to heal them. That's not true. Sometimes Jesus touches and sometimes he does not. Sometimes he merely speaks, and the act is done. But I think the point here, and why the touch by Christ in this instance is important, is like with the leper, it broke with Jewish convention. Remember, in Jewish oral tradition, they thought a lot of things could make you unclean. Interestingly, even touching a person with a fever, they believed, could make you unclean. But here, we learn afresh that Jesus' touch others, him touching others, it never makes him unclean. It only makes those that he touches clean, makes them healed, and makes them whole. That's what we learn afresh. And notice the complete healing. The moment that Jesus touched her, she was completely healed. In fact, notice the further comment Matthew makes here after the blue. It says, and she got up and waited on him. Don't think that that means, as some have concluded, that all those who, are touched, who have been touched by Jesus have to serve Jesus. That is true, 
But that's an allegorical reading I don't think Matthew wants us to hold. I think Matthew's pure point is that she was healed instantly. The mother-in-law didn't need time for recuperation, take an hour nap to kind of heal up. No, she was instantly healed and could serve Christ. Jesus, when he heals, shows that he has the power to make someone not only clean, but whole. Now, as we approach verses 16 through 17, we see Matthew depicting again Christ having all power to heal, showing us that he is the long-awaited suffering servant, even from Isaiah 53. Matthew 8, 16 through 17, it says, When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Now, this is Isaiah 53, 4. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Now, dear ones, notice, first of all, it mentions that evening had come. Now, I want you to realize that when you look at the Synoptic Gospels, for example, Mark chapter 2 and elsewhere, we see that a lot of these healings occurred during the Sabbath. Matthew's focus here is not on the Sabbath controversy. He will come to that. We will come to the Sabbath controversy when we get to Matthew 12. But here, I think Matthew's just pointing out the evening had come. Why? Because the Jews in Galilee would wait, to, wait for sunset. The Sabbath would be over. Then they were free to travel. So that's why now they're bringing the demon-possessed. They're bringing those who are ill. And I want you to notice here that Jesus cast out all the spirits, it says, with a word. Jesus did not have to follow after the Jewish exorcist and use many words and some formulaic incantation. He didn't have to be present. He didn't have to touch. He merely just had to speak the word. The one who created all things by the mere spoken word has the authority over even the demonic realm. Notice also all those who were ill, they were all healed. Again, Jesus demonstrating that he has all authority. He has authority over illness. He has authority over the demonic realm. Later we'll see that he has authority over the sea as he calms the storm. He has authority even over life and death itself. So from that, what does Matthew conclude? Matthew concludes in verse 17 that therefore Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 4. Notice it says, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Now, one thing I want to point out is when it comes to the translation here that Matthew is using of Isaiah 53.4, oftentimes the New Testament writers will cite from the Greek Septuagint. That is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Here, Matthew is not doing that. I believe he is giving a rendering of the Hebrew himself. So he is translating from the Hebrew to the Greek, and it's, own, it's his own translation. Now, the reason I'm laboring this point is some scholars today will claim that Matthew is rendering Isaiah 53, verse 4, in an indefensible way. Why? Well, because the context of Isaiah 53 is about the removal of sin, whereas Matthew is talking about the removal of disease. So the claim is Matthew is just reading into the text what he wants. Well, I'm going to address that. I want to show that, no, Matthew is really interpreting Isaiah 53, 4 as it should be properly understood. First point I want to make regarding the defense of Matthew's usage of Isaiah 53, 4 
is that many years ago in the 1950s, there was a scholar named C.H. Dodd. And by the way, uh, don't read a lot of his work. I have a lot of disagreements. He attacked the substitutionary atonement. But one area that he was correct in was saying that when you read the New Testament writers and how they cite the Old Testament, you have to realize that the New Testament writers would have had the Old Testament virtually memorized. And they would have understood the entirety of the context of the Old Testament. So in other words, the entirety of the context of Isaiah 53 is implied in Matthew's argument. Now, let me talk about Matthew's Matthew's interpretation here or translation. Let's look at some of the verbs. And even before I do that, notice here we have what's called an adjectival intensive. It says, he himself took our infirmities. That's a good rendering of the Hebrew. And I like that because, again, the point is in Isaiah 53, this suffering servant is the God-man. That's who it is. Whoever the suffering servant is in Isaiah 53, there was no deceit upon his lips, according to Isaiah 53, 9. Could that be said of any Israelite? No. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 could not be an Israelite. It had to be the Messiah. Here we see that the Messiah is God. Why? Because it's he himself who takes away the diseases. God alone is the great healer. Now, let's look at a couple of the verbs here. Notice here, Matthew renders the Hebrew term nasah, which means to carry or to lift up. It might be the idea of almost bearing. Notice he renders it with the Greek term lambano, which means to receive. And so, again, Matthew is being faithful. Again, I think lambano is a great choice. Why? Because here the suffering servant is receiving to himself the infirmities and the ideas that he carries them away. It is roughly synonymous. In fact, the term carried away there, bastazo, in the Greek, is a good rendering of the Hebrew, which is saval. Again, it means to carry, to carry a heavy burden from one place to another. And so the reason I'm pointing this out is Matthew is not playing fast and loose with the Hebrew. He is translating it very reliably and according to the original context. That's what you have to see. Now, I think the ultimate issue here is that since sin is really the ultimate cause of all illness and death, the removal of our sin debt by Christ here leads to the ultimate healing. The ultimate healing, which is what? Everlasting life, the forgiveness of sins. What Matthew sees fundamentally in this text is that because Christ is good for the immediate healing here and now, he is good for the ultimate healing in the future. And because we get the ultimate healing in the future, the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, our infirmities will be removed and our diseases will be carried away. I'll show you in our application that the Word of Faith movement who tries to claim this is all fulfilled now, they're wrong. Ultimately, the death rate is still one per person. But one day in the resurrection, all because we have the forgiveness of sins, because we've been given the ultimate healing, one day your infirmities and your diseases will be carried away. No, Matthew wasn't reading into the Old Testament something that wasn't there. He was faithfully relaying to us that Jesus, Jesus alone gives us the ultimate healing. 
Let's go on to some applications. I have a couple of points for you here this morning. Number one, we should know that Jesus' ability to physically heal proves his ability to give everlasting life to his people. Again, the Word of Faith movement, what they like to claim is that the healing is here and now, that you can name it and claim it, and if, in fact, you're not healed, it's your fault. But we're going to see that that's not true. Number two, we must know that the ultimate healing we all need is the forgiveness of sins for everlasting life. If you're not forgiven of your sins, your ailments here in this life will one day take you, and you'll have only the lake of fire. But if you have faith in Christ, and you have the ultimate healing, one day your diseases will be remedied as well. That's what we have to learn. Now, dear ones, I want to show you here how Isaiah the prophet really oftentimes mix the idea of physical healing with the spiritual. That they both went hand in hand. And sometimes when you read the text, you have to look at it and say, is it physical healing or is it regeneration? That is spiritual healing. And you have to say both. It's yes, Messiah does both. Messiah's work leads to both spiritual healing and physical healing. Uh, One passage I want to point out here on the screen is Isaiah chapter 29. Remember, Isaiah 29 was all about this judgment that came upon Israel at the hands of Sennacherib. Why? Because they lived with spiritual blindness. But notice the great expectation that one day in the Messianic age, this is what the Messiah would do for his people. Isaiah 29, 18 through 19, it says, On that day the deaf will hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord, and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Brothers and sisters, I think ultimately this is fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. And I hope you see as you look at this text a sort of double entendre. In other words, is it referring to the deaf literally hearing? Or is it spiritually that they perceive the gospel? I think yes, it's both. And I think that relates to how Matthew understood Isaiah 53, 4. Because Jesus had the authority to physically heal, he has the authority to give you the ultimate healing. Because he can physically help you see, he's the one who can spiritually heal help you see. Because he can physically help you hear and enable you to hear, he can spiritually make you hear. That's the idea. It's not either or, it's both and. Uh, Let me just mention, oftentimes in the book of Revelation, people will say, is that literal or symbolic? I'll say, yes. The literal is symbolic. When the Marines lifted the flag on Mount Suribachi, was it a literal flag? Yes. Was it symbolic? Yes. The flag was there, men really raised it, and yet it was a symbol that we beat the Japanese on Iwo Jima. Happy Fourth of July. All right, so that's the way it is. It's yes, it's both and. Isaiah 32, let's look at another text, again, ultimately fulfilled in the Millennial Kingdom, verses 3 through 4. It says, Then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded, and the ears of those who hear will listen. The mind of the hasty will discern the truth, and the tongue of the stammers will hasten to speak clearly. I think certainly the focus here is not on the physical, but on the idea of regeneration. The idea that there will be those who really understand the words of the Lord as promised in the, the terms of the new covenant, for example, in Jeremiah 31, that they will all know the Lord, it says. That's the great day that's happening. And again, Jesus opens the eyes and the ears 
of the blind and the deaf during his earthly ministry to show you that he can also do it spiritually. Uh, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah 42, verses 6 through 7. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 through 7. Now, as you're turning there, when we look at passages like Isaiah 42 or Isaiah 49, certainly we can argue that Israel was to be a servant that the Lord used to reach the nations with the truth of the gospel. That is, Israel was to be God's faithful son, and they were to bring the light to the nations. What happened with Israel? Well, the problem with Israel is they became like the nations. And so as Messiah comes on the scene of history, he does what Israel failed to do. Why? He's a faithful son they never were. That's why they went into the wilderness for 40 years. They failed. Jesus goes in for 40 days. He succeeds. He's the faithful son. Israel never was. And therefore, this is ultimately applied to him. Isaiah 42, 6 through 7, it says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Notice the idea of regeneration, opening blind eyes. Again, Jesus opens blind eyes physically during his earthly ministry, but he also is the one who sends the Spirit and opens blind eyes spiritually for the ultimate healing. Again, dear ones, Matthew understood Isaiah 53, 4 correctly. Because Jesus could give physical healings, he has the authority to give the ultimate healing. Now, let me show you a verse that should, if there ever would be a refrigerator magnet verse, it should certainly be Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6. Jot this down, wake a neighbor, tell a friend, this should be your verse on your refrigerator because it's so important. If there's one text that Jesus appeals to to prove his messianic credentials, it is his fulfillment of Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6. Let me actually read it. I'll have it on the screen here. Notice it says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. Now, dear ones, ultimately, I believe this will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. When the Lord is reigning from Jerusalem, do you know that according to the later chapters, like chapter 47 of Ezekiel, we'll see literal flowing streams of life coming from the throne of the Messiah as he reigns in Jerusalem. And there really will be healing. There really will be a world that's characterized by no more warfare, no more shedding of blood, no more disease. That's the way it will be. But what Christ does during his earthly ministry is he shows you at the inauguration, at the first coming, the down payment. And so he heals the blind. He heals the deaf. The lame leap like a deer. Now, this is the essence of the proof of Jesus' messianic credentials. Not so says Eric Dalma, so says Jesus. Let me show you. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 11, 1 through 5. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 11, verses 1 through 5. And the reason I want you to turn there is I want you to see how John the Baptist, in his moment of doubt, how he sent messengers to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? And listen to the response Jesus gives. 
Now remember, again, turn to Matthew 11, 1 through 5. As you're turning there, John the Baptist, remember, was arrested by Herod, Herod Philip. And he is going to be eventually put to death. He's imprisoned. So even John the Baptist, the greatest of all men, the last of the Old Testament prophets, the one according to Isaiah and Malachi who's to prepare the way straight for the Lord, he has a moment of doubt. And so listen to what it says. It says, When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, that's John the Baptist, this is verse 2, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Stop there in verse 3. Do you know the Greek uh, originally where it says, Are you the expected one? It literally says, Are you the coming one? There's a participle there. Are you the one who comes? And I think that's deriving all the way from Genesis 49.10, where the great promise is that there was one who would come to whom the nations would owe their allegiance, the one who would come from Judah. Fast forward to Isaiah 59.20. You have the great promise of the Redeemer who would come to Zion. Uh, think of Psalm 118.26, the great messianic psalm. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. In fact, Jesus asserts that that's messianic. In fact, he tells the Jews as he rebukes them and declares to them their temple desolate, in Matthew 23, he says, You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. In other words, they won't see him again until they have faith. That comes at the parousia of Christ. So certainly, this is a messianic phrase. That's what I want you to see there. So literally, John is asking, Are you the Messiah? Or should we look for someone else? Now, how does Jesus respond? Notice verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. And he cites Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. Now he blends it with Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Dear ones, the evidence given by Christ was Isaiah 35, that in the healing of the blind, the deaf, the lame, and the mute, we could know that the Messianic age was inaugurated. Not that it was consummated. That's at the second coming. That it was inaugurated. It was at hand. It was on the scene of history at that time in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that's exactly, I think, how Matthew understood Isaiah 53, 4. Jesus is doing healings. He's the one who can do the ultimate healing. He's the suffering servant, the long-awaited Messiah, listed in the book of Isaiah. That's how he understood it. Now, let me show you something that's very interesting. Here's a time where we want to learn our Bible. I want you to take note of Isaiah 35, 6, where it talks about the lame leaping like a deer. You'll see this kind of healing throughout the book of Acts at the hands of the apostles. Bob taught us this very well as, he, as he's taught us through the book of Acts in Sunday school. So if you're a note-taker, Jot down these verses, if you would. Jot down Acts 3.2. And by the way, write these down vertically, if you could. Acts 3.2. And then next to it, put Peter-Jerusalem. Because there, in Jerusalem, Peter healed a paralytic man, and he leaped like a deer. 
Okay, then fast forward to Acts 8-7. Write that right below Acts 3-2. In Acts 8-7, jot next to that Philip and next to that Samaria. What does Philip do? He heals a layman who ends up leaping like a deer. Isaiah 35-6. Then right below that, write Acts 18-4-8. This is in Asia Minor, and so right next to it, Paul, the apostle, Asia Minor. Now, why is this important? Why I'm showing you Peter... Jerusalem, why am I showing you Philip in Samaria and then the Apostle Paul in Asia Minor? Remember the programmatic verse of Acts, Acts 1-6. Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Sure enough, the healings at the hands of the apostles happen in just that way. Showing what? That they are the authoritative spokesmen for Jesus Christ. It's not that Peter, Philip, or the Apostle Paul are spiritual superstars and the rest of us are just a bunch of dunderheads. It's that they are the authoritative spokesmen for Jesus Christ. And the miraculous deeds they did proved it. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Acts 14. I want you to see this for yourselves. Acts 14, 8 through 11. Let's read that together. Acts 14, 8 through 11. Notice here in Acts 14, Paul is at Lystra. This would be in Asia Minor. Now remember, that would be considered the ends of the earth. So Peter's already healed the lame in Jerusalem. Philip has already done it in Samaria in Acts 8, 7. And now it's at the ends of the earth, following the programmatic verse of Acts 1, 6. So Acts 14, 8 through 11, it says, At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. Stop there. Realize that to the Jews, if a man was either born blind or a woman, or a man or woman was born lame, they considered the healing of such a person to be on par with the original creation itself. Why? Well, because the person never had an ability that was restored it was created ex nihilo, as it were, out of nothing. And so they knew that that was something only God could do. So notice in verse 9, it says, This man was listening to Paul, that is the lame man, as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. Stop there. Why does it say that he leaped up? Well, he really did. It's literal. But it also shows us this fulfillment from Isaiah 35, 6, that he's leaping like a deer. That at the hands of the apostle, Paul, because he is a personal spokesman for Jesus Christ, he does the miracles that Jesus does. Again, why? Authenticating the very words that Paul writes. If you reject Paul's words or any of the apostles, you're rejecting Christ. If you receive the words of Paul or any of the apostles, you're receiving the very words of Christ. Notice here in Acts 14, 11, it says, When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. Even the pagans knew that this healing of a lame man from birth is only something that a god could do. Yes, dear ones, only Jesus can heal. And at the hands of the apostles, his spokesman did so. That's what we see in the scriptures. Now, 
let me move on. What, one thing I want to deal with in the second application point is I want to begin dealing with the Word of Faith movement. And the reason I want to do so is because they so distort the healing of Isaiah 53. The healing that Matthew understood, the Word of Faith movement distorts. Now, for those of you who are maybe newer in your Christian walk, I, I don't think that that's probably the, the vast majority of you here, but perhaps that are watching, if you have not come across the Word of Faith heresy, you will. So let me explain what the Word of Faith heresy is. When I was a brand new Christian, I had worked out at Crystal Airport in my early 20s, where I became a flight instructor. And so I knew a lot of the people that went to Mac Hammond's church called Living Word. And so I have a lot of friends there, and I don't want to disparage them, but it is a church that was dedicated to the Word of Faith movement. I don't know if they've changed in their theology. I'm, I'm not saying they are now, but they were at the time. Now, what is the fundamental problem with the Word of Faith movement? Well, what I realized is that the Word of Faith heresy equivocates on the definition of faith. Okay, now what does it mean to equivocate? It means to change the definition. I was talking to somebody in Sunday school today about this very thing, and they, they had raised it very astutely. So let me give you a definition. Let's say I talk to my son. I've mentioned this numerous times, probably ad nauseum. But I say, hey, son, it's, it's cool outside. Why don't you put a jacket on? And he says, Dad, it's okay. I'm a cool cat. Well, do you notice that we're using cool in two different ways? He's equivocating on it. I'm using it for temperature. He's using it for a sense of hipness. So we're talking past each other. The Word of Faith does that, the movement, with the definition of faith. For evangelicals who know their scriptures, faith has an object, and an old, the only valid object is God and his promises, the culmination of which is the person and work of Jesus Christ. So our valid object of faith is who Jesus is and what he's done. His person his work. The Word of Faith movement uses the term faith, but they use it like a force. A force in which they, through their words spoken, can manipulate reality around them. In fact, Ken Copeland, many of you know this, that he had boasted in being able to speak storms out of existence. I tell you what, I could have used that as an airline pilot a time or two. We wouldn't have had a lot of late flights. But he claimed that. So do you see then, faith isn't directed towards the object of Christ and his person but rather it becomes like the force of Luke Skywalker who can manipulate the world through the spoken word. And so the idea then is they take passages like Isaiah 53 and they look at the term healing and they say that's an absolute promise that you can have now. And if you don't have complete healing now, it's not because the will of God has been done, but they will say to you it's because you don't have faith. You don't have the faith, therefore it's your fault. I can't tell you the devastation that I saw in certain people's lives because of that teaching. To tell people when they're hurting, when they have disease, when they have sickness, to tell them it's their fault, it's so damaging. So what I want to do is unpack what Isaiah 53 really means, verses 4 through 5. Let's look at again this text that Matthew was alluding today, the very text that the Word of Faith movement distorts. Let's read it afresh. It says in verses 4 through 5, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. 
and by his scourging we are healed. First thing I want to point out is notice here in the blue in verse 4, notice the idea of the griefs and the sorrows. For Isaiah, this is caused by illness, it's caused by disease. That's what it's caused by, these sorrows and these griefs. But I want you to see that the reason these temporary diseases are carried away is because of the atonement of the suffering servant. That's what Isaiah understood. That's what Matthew understood. Notice here in verse 5, it says, But he, that's the suffering servant, was pierced through for our transgressions. Notice the term pierced. That's a physical piercing. And this is accurately describing the way Christ dies some 700 years prior to the first advent. Notice it's substitutionary. It's for our transgressions. You could literally render that on behalf of our transgressions. That's the idea of substitution. The suffering servant taking upon himself something to remove our sin debt. Dear ones, those who say that the substitutionary atonement is a made-up doctrine, they are wrong. The substitutionary atonement's been under attack a lot in the 20th and the 21st century. And those who say that the Bible does not teach the substitutionary atonement, they're either ignorant of the biblical data or they're lying. Either way, they shouldn't be teaching because it's exactly what it says. Notice he was crushed for our iniquities, substitution. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, substitution. And by his scourging, we are healed. Notice this healing that's being referred to. The word of faith teacher will take that term healed and they say, that's your absolute promise here and now. And if you don't have it, it's because you don't have enough faith, again, as a force. They won't tell you that, but that's what they really mean by it. But dear ones, what kind of healing was Isaiah really referring to? Well, the ultimate healing. Think about, isn't the death rate one per person? Doesn't it say in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed once for a man to die, after that comes judgment? And so you and I may have our diseases, even here and now, healed temporarily. But one day, should the Lord tarry, we all go into the ground. And so the ultimate healing that Isaiah looked for is the healing that comes from the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life in the resurrected body. No, don't let the word of faith teachers fool you and try to claim that we all are guaranteed healing here and now. And the only reason anyone's sick is because they don't have enough faith. That's, that's a bunch of hogwash. The truth of it is we need the ultimate healing, forgiveness of sins, everlasting life in the age to come. Now, I had mentioned earlier as I was getting into the text in Matthew 8, that there was a scholar from the 1950s, C.H. Dodd, and he said, you know, when the New Testament writers would cite from the Old Testament, the entirety of the context of that Old Testament passage was implied. Why? Because these men knew it very well. And I want to show you that to give a defense of Matthew's handling of Isaiah 53, 4. I want you to know that Matthew the Apostle knew Isaiah 53 exceedingly well. Let me show you some evidence of that, just real briefly. Matthew 27, 12, Matthew alludes to Isaiah 53, 7. Matthew 27, 57, he alludes to Isaiah 53, 9. Earlier in Matthew 20, 28, he alludes to Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. No, 
Matthew was not playing fast and loose with Isaiah. He understood the context. He understood that Isaiah 53 is ultimately about the atonement and the ultimate healing. In fact, notice what it says here. He records Jesus in Matthew 20, 28, where Jesus said, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Again, we have the idea of substitution. Does everyone see the preposition in the box there? The preposition anti, or sometimes it's huper. It could literally be rendered on behalf of. That's the idea that it says that he would give his life a ransom on behalf of the many. It's all over the, the Bible. Second Corinthians 5.21, the Apostle Paul says that the Father made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin, who pair on our behalf substitution so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. No, dear ones, the New Testament writers were not confused about the Old Testament. What they fundamentally understood is that the temporary healings Jesus did showed us that he was the one alone who could give us the ultimate healing, forgiveness of sins, and everlasting life. Now, let me show you that in another text. I'll show you this from, I, from Matthew chapter 9. Now, before I put up Matthew chapter 9, this is where the paralytic man, remember, is healed. And I want you to think about how some of the synoptic gospels, they give further details that we don't have in Matthew in Mark chapter 2, this paralytic man is brought by his friends, apparently, to this house, and they go through a lot of work to have the paralytic man healed. In fact, they would have had to get through a huge crowd on the outside of the home. They somehow got up on the roof with him. Think about that work with a paralytic man. That would wipe me out. I'd be have to take a nap for the rest of the day right there. Then they had to peel back the thatch roof. They lowered him down. And what does Jesus say to the man? He says, your sins are forgiven. And I have to say, from a human perspective, that would be a little bit of a letdown. You just tore through this entire crowd, a thatch roof. You got a paralytic man on the roof. You lowered him down. And Jesus says, the sins are forgiven. And you're thinking, what about the healing so that the man can walk? Well, Jesus, being God, perceives those who say, wait a minute, you have the authority to forgive sin? But he also perceives those who think that that's no big deal. And so Matthew picks it up here, Matthew 9, 5 through 6. Jesus says to this paralytic man and to the crowd, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Let's stop there. Let's think about that for just a moment. What is the easier thing to do? And what's the more important thing to do? Well, notice how Jesus answers this. He says, but so that, notice in blue, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, ultimate healing. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. Temporary healing. That's exactly what Matthew's point is today in Matthew 8 as he cites Isaiah 53, 4. The temporary healings by Jesus are evidence that he alone has the authority to give the ultimate healing, the forgiveness of sins, an everlasting life. And dear brothers and sisters, that's the healing we all ultimately need. Now, let me show you that it's not just the synoptic gospels. I want you to see that John has the same idea. Temporary healings here and now during this earthly ministry designed to point to the fact that Christ will give us the ultimate healing. 
Uh, we see that, for example, with the healing of Lazarus. Think about poor Lazarus. Lazarus dies, and because he was a believer, I believe he was in the New Jerusalem. That's where heaven is. It's the heavenly city. That's the, the heavenly Zion. So he's in glory, and all of a sudden he gets plucked out. <laughs> Can you imagine? And then when he comes back to life, the Jewish leaders want to kill him again. What a dismal, dismal time that was, huh? But let's look at how, again, the healing of Lazarus was designed to point forward to the greater healing. John eleven fourteen through 17, it says, So when Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Let me stop there in verse 14. I love that. Remember, Jesus had given the euphemism that Lazarus was asleep to his disciples. Well, the disciples, like me, weren't the sharpest tools in the shed. And they said, well, if that's true, let's just go wake him up. So Jesus has to boil it down to them. Lazarus is dead, guys. I'm using a euphemism. And then in verse 15, he says, And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then at verse 16, it says, Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. Verse 17, So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. That is, Lazarus. So Lazarus was a four-dayer. He was undergoing decay. Now, isn't it interesting here in verse 15, Jesus says that he was glad that he wasn't with Lazarus when he had died. Why? Because if Jesus had prevented him from dying, the disciples wouldn't have seen the temporary healing, which proves that Christ can give the ultimate healing. The ultimate healing comes to only those who believe. I want to share with everyone here and everyone that may be listening today how you can have this ultimate healing of the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. And I want to share with you first the very, very bad news that we find in our Bible. The bad news is very bad. The bad news in the Bible is that all of us have sinned and rebelled against God. In thought, word, and deed. In fact, in Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have committed cosmic treason against the Holy One of Israel. And the news gets worse when we get to Romans 6.23. In Romans 6.23, it says, The wages of our sin is death. Remember, death in the Bible is never annihilation, a, a ceasing to exist. But rather, death is a separation separation of body and soul at physical death. But one day, the penalty for us sinners is a separation from God in the eternal lake of fire, being judged and punished forevermore. I can't think of any worse news. I can't think of any worse news than being a cosmic rebel against the Holy One of Israel and risking being sentenced to the lake of fire forevermore. But that's precisely what the bad news is that's revealed in the Scriptures. That's why the good news makes so much sense. The good news is that God sent forth his Son, the Son who existed as God and with God from all eternity at a point in time in history, humbled himself and became a man through the virgin birth. Jesus is truly God and truly man in one person so that he could live the perfect life that none of us could, so that by faith in him, his righteousness could be credited to our account. 
But this righteousness that was given to us by Christ wasn't just because he lived the perfect life. It was also because he died a substitutionary death. Jesus the just on behalf of us the unjust in order that we might be brought to God. Meaning that at Jesus' death, he took upon himself the full measure of God's wrath that we deserve to be punished with, and he paid it off so that you and I could go free. The proof that Jesus accomplished this is seen by the fact that on the third day, after his bodily death, he was bodily raised from the dead. This resurrection proves all of his claims. The resurrection of Christ proves that he really is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by him, as Christ claimed. Jesus also ascended into the heavens where he's seated at the right hand of God. From where he's coming to bring a glorious kingdom for his people, a resurrection and eternal life, but wrath and judgment upon his enemies. What must we do? What does Jesus command us to do when he returns? Well, prior to his return, he wants us all, he says, according to Mark 1.15, to repent and to believe the gospel. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. Repent means to turn, to have a change of mind and a change of direction in one's life, to turn from idolatry, turn from unbelief, and turn to God on his terms, which is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone today. If you will trust upon Jesus, you're not going to get just temporary healings here and now. You're going to be a partaker of the ultimate healing. That's the good news that we learn today in Matthew chapter 8. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that through your Son we can have not just the hope of being relieved of symptoms and problems here and now, but the great promise of resurrection life in your glorious kingdom as you rule and reign upon the earth and into the new heavens and the new earth from all, for all eternity. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for that assurance that through Christ we have that. And I do pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for stamina upon them as the difficulties of life hit them. I pray, Heavenly Father, as the world closes in in persecution, that they would hang on to this great future promise, that they would live for that, that we would forsake the sins that so easily entangle us here and now, that you would give us boldness, the gospel upon our lips, and the opportunity to give this great truth to our family, our friends, co-workers, Lord, who don't know you, that they may hear and they may have the ultimate healing as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.